Chapter 3 of The Moon Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 3 Brother General Ortis. The next day I set out as usual to peddle goat's milk. We were permitted to trade in perishable things on other than market days, though we had to make a strict accounting for all such bartering. I usually left Molly until the last as Jim had a deep cold well on his place, where I liked to quench my thirst after my morning trip. But today, Molly got her milk fresh and first and early, about a half an hour earlier than I was wont to start out. When I knocked and she had bade me enter and saw who it was, she looked surprised at first for just an instant, and then a strange expression came into her eyes, half amusement, half pity, and she rose and went into the kitchen for the milk jar. I saw her wipe the corners of her eyes with the back of one finger, but I did not understand why. Not then. The stranger girl had been in the kitchen helping Molly, and the latter must have told her I was there, for she came right in and greeted me. It was the first good look I had of her, for candlelight is not brilliant at best. If I had been enthralled the evening before, there was no word in my limited vocabulary to express the effect she had on me by daylight. She... But it is useless. I cannot describe her. It took Molly a long time to find the milk jar, bless her, though it seemed short enough to me, and while she was finding it, the stranger girl and I were getting acquainted. First, she asked after her father and mother, and then she asked our names. When I told her mine, she repeated it several times to herself in a low voice. Julian the Ninth, she said. Julian the Ninth. And then she smiled up at me. It is a nice name. I like it. And what is your name? I asked. Juana, she said, and she pronounced it Juana. Juana St. John. I am glad, I said, that you like my name, but I like yours better. It was a very foolish speech, and it made me feel silly, but she did not seem to think it was foolish, or if she did, she was too nice to let me know it. I have known many girls, but mostly they were homely and stupid. The pretty girls were seldom allowed in the marketplace. That is, the pretty girls of our class. The Calcars permitted their girls to go abroad, for they did not care who got them, as long as someone got them. But American fathers and mothers would rather slay their girls than send them to the marketplace, and the former often was done. The Calcar girls, even those born of American mothers, were coarse and brutal in appearance low-browed, vulgar, bovine. No stock can be improved or even kept to its normal plane unless high-grade males are used. This girl was so entirely different from any other that I had ever seen that I marveled that such a glorious creature could exist. I wanted to know all about her. It seemed to me that in some way I had been robbed of my right for many years, that she should have lived and breathed and talked and gone her way without my ever knowing it or her. I wanted to make up for lost time, and so I asked her many questions. She told me that she had been born and raised in the Tivos, just west of Chicago, which extended along the Displane River, and embraced a considerable area of unpopulated country and scattered farms. My father's home is in a district called Oak Park, she said, and our house was one of the few that remained from ancient times. It was of solid concrete and stood upon the corner of two roads. Once it 
must have been a very beautiful place, and even time and war have been unable entirely to erase its charm. Three great poplar trees rose to the north of it, beside the ruins of what my father said was once a place where motor cars were kept by the long-dead owner. To the south of the house were many roses, growing wild and luxuriant, while the concrete walls from which the plaster had fallen in great patches were almost entirely concealed by the clinging ivy that reached to the very eaves. It was my home, and so I loved it, but now it is lost to me forever. The cash guard and the tax collector came seldom. We were too far from the station and the marketplace, which lay southwest of us on Salt Creek. But recently the new Jemadar Jarth appointed another commandant and a new tax collector. They did not like the station at Salt Creek, and so they sought for a better location, and after inspecting the district, they chose Oak Park, and my father's home being the most comfortable and substantial, they ordered him to sell it to the twenty-four. You know what that means. They appraised it at a high figure. Fifty thousand dollars it was, and paid him in paper money. There was nothing to do, and so we prepared to move. Whenever they had come to look at the house, my mother had hidden me in a little cubbyhole on the landing between the second and third floors, placing a pile of rubbish in front of me. But the day that we were leaving to take a place on the banks of the Des Plaines, where father thought that we might live without being disturbed, the new commandant came unexpectedly and saw me. How old is the girl? he asked my mother. Fifteen, she replied sullenly. You lie, you sow, he cried angrily. She is eighteen if she is a day. Father was standing there beside us, and when the commandant spoke as he did to mother, I saw father go very white, and then without a word he hurled himself upon the swine, and before the cash guard who accompanied him could prevent, father had almost killed the commandant with his bare hands. You know what happened. I do not need to tell you. They killed my father before my eyes. Then the commandant gave my mother to one of his cash guard, but she snatched his bayonet from his belt and ran it through her heart before they could prevent. I tried to follow her example, but they seized me. I was carried to my own bedroom on the second floor of my father's house and locked there. The commandant said that he would come and see me in the evening and that everything would be all right with me. I knew what he meant, and I made up my mind that he would find me dead. My heart was breaking for the loss of my father and mother, and yet the desire to live was strong within me. I did not want to die. Something urged me to live, and in addition was the teaching of my father and mother. They were both from Quaker stock and very religious. They educated me to fear God and to do no wrong by thought or violence to another. And yet I had seen my father attempt to kill a man, and I had seen my mother slay herself. My world was all upset. I was almost crazed by grief and fear and uncertainty as to what was the right thing for me to do. And then darkness came, and I heard someone ascending the stairway. The windows of the second story are too far from the ground for one to risk a leap, but the ivy is old and strong. The commandant was not sufficiently familiar with the place to have taken the ivy into consideration, and before the footsteps reached my door, I had swung out of the window and clinging to the ivy made my way to the ground, down the rough and strong old stem. That was three days ago. I hid and wandered, 
I did not know in what direction I went. Once an old woman took me in overnight and fed me and gave me food to carry for the next day. I think that I must have been almost mad, for mostly the beginnings of the past three days are only indistinct and jumbled fragments of memory in my mind. And then the hellhounds. Oh, how frightened I was! And then you! I don't know what there was about the way she said it, but it seemed to me as though it meant a great deal more than she knew herself. Almost like a prayer of thanksgiving, it was, that she had at last found a safe haven of refuge, safe and permanent. Anyway, I liked the idea. And then Molly came in, and as I was leaving, she asked me if I would come that evening. And Juana cried, Oh, yes, do! And I said that I would. When I had finished delivering the goat's milk, I started for home, and on the way I met old Samuels, the Jew. He made his living, and a scant one it was, by tanning hides. He was a most excellent tanner, but as nearly everyone else knew how to tan, there were not many customers. But some of the cowcars used to bring him hides to tan. They knew nothing of how to do any useful thing, for they were descended from a long line of the most ignorant and illiterate people in the moon. And the moment they obtained a little power, they would not even work at what small trades their fathers once had learned so that after a generation or two they were able to live only off the labor of others. They created nothing. They produced nothing. They became the most burdensome class of parasites the world has ever endured. The rich non-producers of olden times were a blessing to the world by comparison with these, for the former at least had intelligence and imagination. They could direct others, and they could transmit to their offspring the qualities of mind that are essential to any culture, progress, or happiness, that the world ever may hope to attain. So the Kalkars patronized Samuels for their tanned hides, and if they had paid him for them, the old Jew would have waxed rich. But they either did not pay him at all, or else mostly in paper money that did not even burn well, as Samuels used to say. "'Good morning, Julian,' he called as we met. "'I shall be needing some hides soon, for the new commander of the Gash Guard has... Heard of old Samuels, and has sent for me, and ordered five hides tanned, the finest that can be. Have you seen this Ortis, Julian? He lowered his voice. I shook my head negatively. Heaven help us, whispered the old man. Heaven help us. Is he as bad as that, Moses? I asked. The old man wrung his hands. Bad times are ahead, my son, he said. Old Samuels knows his kind. He is not lazy like the last one, and he is more cruel and more lustful. But about the hides, I have not paid you for the last. They paid me in paper money. But that I would not offer to a friend in payment for a last year's bird's nest. Maybe that I shall not be able to pay you for these new hides for a long time. Depends upon how Ortus pays me. Sometimes they are liberal, as they can afford to be with the property of others. But if he is a half-breed, as I hear he is, he will hate a Jew, and I shall get nothing. However, if he is pure Kalkar, it may be different. The pure Kalkars do not hate a Jew more than they hate other earthmen. Though there is one Jew who hates a Kalkar. That night we had our first introduction to Ortis. He came in person, but I will tell you how it all happened. 
After supper, I went over to Jim's. Juana was standing in the little doorway as I came up the path. She looked rested now and almost happy. The hunted expression had left her eyes, and she smiled as I approached. It was almost dusk, for the spring evenings were still short, but the air was balmy, and so we stood outside talking. I recited the little gossip of our district that I had picked up during my day's work. The 24 had raised the local tax on farm products. Andrew Wright's woman had given birth to twins, a boy and a girl, but the girl had died. No need of comment here, as most girl babies die. Sewer had said that he would tax this district until we all died of starvation. Pleasant fellow, Sewer. One of the cash guard had taken Nellie Levy. Hoffmeyer had said that next winter we would have to pay more for coal. Dennis Corrigan had been sent to the mines for ten years because he had been caught trading at night. It was all alike, this gossip of ours, all sordid or sad or tragic. But then life was a tragedy with us. After a while, I took Juana over to our house to see my mother. She liked the house very much. My father's father built it with his own hands. It is constructed of stone taken from the ruins of the old city. Stone and brick. Father says that he thinks the bricks are from an old pavement, as we still see patches of these ancient bricks in various localities. Nearly all our houses are of this construction, for timber is scarce. The foundation and the walls above the ground for about three feet are of rough stones of various sizes, and above this are the bricks. The stones are laid so that some project farther than others, and the effect is odd and rather nice. The eaves are low and overhanging, and the roof is thatched. It is a nice house, and Mother keeps it scrupulously clean and meticulously neat within. We have been talking for perhaps an hour, sitting in our living room, Father, Mother, Juana, and I, when the door was suddenly thrust open without warning, and we looked up to see a man in the uniform of a cash guard confronting us. Behind him were others. We all rose and stood in silence. Two entered and took posts on either side of the doorway, and then a third came in, a tall, dark man in the uniform of a commander, and we knew at once that it was Ortis. At his heels were six more. Ortis looked at each of us, and then singling out Father, he said, You are Brother Julian the Eighth. Father nodded. Ortis eyed him for a moment, and then his gaze wandered to Mother and Juana, and I saw a new expression lessen the fierce scowl that had clouded his face from the moment of his entry. He was a large man. His nose was thin and rather fine, his eyes cold, gray, and piercing. He was very different from the fat swine that had preceded him. Very different, and more dangerous. Even I could see that. I could see a thin, cruel upper lip, and a full and sensuous lower. If the other had been a pig, this one was a wolf, and he had the nervous restlessness of the wolf, and the vitality to carry out any wolfish designs his crafty brain might entertain. "'So you are Brother Julian the Eighth, he repeated. "'I do not have good reports of you. I have come for two reasons tonight.' One is to warn you that the cash guard is commanded by a different sort of man from him who I relieved. I will stand no trifling and no treason. There must be unquestioned loyalty to the Jemadar at Washington. Every national and local law will be enforced. Troublemakers and traitors will get short shrift. A manifesto will be read in each marketplace Saturday. A manifesto that I have just received from Washington. 
our great Jemadar has conferred greater powers upon the commanders of the Cash Guard. You will come to me with all your grievances. Where justice miscarries, I shall be the court of last resort. The judgment of any court may be appealed to me. On the other hand, let wrongdoers beware, as under the new law, any cause may be tried before a summary military court over which the commander of the Cash Guard must preside. And, continued Ortis, I have come for another reason, a reason that looks bad for you, Brother Julian, but we shall see what we shall see. And turning to the men behind him, he issued a curt command. Search the place! That was all. But I saw in memory another man standing in this same living room, a man from beneath whose coat fell an empty sack when he raised an arm. For an hour they searched that little three-room house. For an hour they tumbled our few belongings over and over. But mostly they searched the living room, and especially about the fireplace did they hunt for a hidden nook. A dozen times my heart stood still as I saw them feeling of the stones above the mantel. We all knew what they sought, all but Juana, and we knew what it would mean if they found it. Death for father, and for me too, perhaps, and worse for mother and the girl. And to think that Johansson had done this awful thing to curry favor for himself with the new commander. I knew it was he. I knew it as surely as though Ortis had told me. To curry favor with the commander, I thought that was the reason then. God, had I but known his real reason— well, they searched for an hour and found nothing, but I knew that Ortis was not satisfied that the thing he sought was not there, and toward the end of the search I could see that he was losing patience. He took direct charge at last, and then when they had no better success under his direction, he became very angry. "'Yankee swine!' he cried suddenly, turning upon Father. "'You will find that you cannot fool a descendant of the great Germandar Orthus, as you have fooled the others.' Not for long. I have a nose for traitors. I can smell a yank farther than most men can see one. Take a warning. Take a warning to your kind. It will be death or the mines for every traitor in the Tivos. He stood then in silence for a moment, glaring at Father, and then his gaze moved to Juana, where she stood just behind my shoulder at the far side of the room. Who are you, girl? he demanded. Where do you live, and what do you that adds to the prosperity of the community? Adds to the prosperity of the community. It was a phrase often on their lips, and it was always directed at us. A meaningless phrase, as there was no prosperity. We supported the Kalkars, and that was their idea of prosperity. I suppose ours was to get barely sufficient to sustain life and strength to enable us to continue slaving for them. I live with Molly Sheehan, replied Juana, and help her care for the chickens and the little pigs. Also, I help with the housework. Hmm, ejaculated Ortis. Housework? That is good. I shall be needing someone to keep my quarters tidy. How about it, my girl? It will be easy work, and I will pay you well. No pigs or chickens to slay for, eh? But I love the little pigs and chickens. I like to care for them, she pleaded and I am happy with Molly. I do not wish to change. Do not wish to change, eh? He mimicked her. She had drawn farther behind me now, as though for protection, and closer. I could feel her body touching mine. Molly can doubtless take care of her own pigs and chickens without help. If she has so many she cannot do it alone, then she has too many, 
and we will see why it is that she is more prosperous than the rest of us. Probably she should pay a larger income tax. We shall see. Oh, no, cried Juana, frightened now on Molly's account. Please, she has only a few, scarcely enough that she and her man may live after the taxes are paid. Then she does not need you to help her, said Ortis with finality, a nasty sneer upon his lip. You will come and work for me, girl. And then Juana surprised me. She surprised us all, and particularly Ortis. Before she had been rather pleading, and seemingly a little frightened. But now she drew herself to her full height, and with her chin and air looked Ortis straight in the eye. I will not come, she said haughtily. I do not wish to. That was all. Ortis looked surprised. His soldiers shocked. For a moment no one spoke. I glanced at Mother. She was not trembling as I had expected. Her head was up too, and she was openly looking her scorn of the man. Father stood as he usually did before them, with his head bowed. But I saw that he was watching Ortis out of the corners of his eyes, and that his fingers were moving as might the fingers of hands fixed upon a hated throat. "'You will come,' said Ortis a little red in the face now at this defiance. There are ways. And he looked straight at me. And then he turned upon his heel, and followed by his cash guard left the house. End of chapter 3